Well, it's important for us to remember how we got to where we are in this story. What's Jonah been through right before this? Well, he was a dead man walking, right? That's the story up to this point. He and the sailors on the ship that he was fleeing from the presence of God on had tried everything. They were like that cancer patient, the terminal patient who's tried every treatment option and is now exhausted, even the experimental stuff, the crazy stuff. Nothing's working. All the tests have come back and said, the cancer's only spreading. It's only getting worse. Jonah had stood on that boat at this point for hours and heard the piercing howl of that wind. I don't know if you've ever been in a tornado or a hurricane, but I have. When I was about seven years old, uh, back in Marietta, it was the middle of the night, and a tornado passed over our neighborhood and right on top of our house because it, like, stripped the roof off of our house. And I was still little enough or young enough for my dad to, like, just scoop me up and my brother off the top bunk and run downstairs with us and the family. But 30 years later, I remember that sound like it happened this morning. It is the freight train. It's like a freight train horn here and here, and it's just crushing you with its power and that sound. The windows were rattling. The garage door was flying open. Stuff was blowing around. I was terrified. And Jonah has been in that for hours. And the text says it only was getting worse. So that's what's going through his mind. He begins to have this terrible realization that I never thought today is my last day. I didn't imagine this is the way it ends for me, but this is the end. I don't get out of here alive. This is it. This is how I die. Anybody else in his situation would have kind of made peace with God, right? But not Jonah. He didn't even have that consolation. Why? He had just told the sailors, I'm the reason the storm is here. I'm the epicenter of the the anger of God. I'm the reason this is happening to all of us. So how is he going to make peace with God? He's the cause of this stuff. And so Jonah doesn't even have the consolation. Maybe I'll have a life in a happier place after this. Or God will go with me through this passage into death or whatever. He doesn't even have that. So what he does is he walks the plank to spare the sailors. And it's not just into a scary ocean. But Jonah will say in this prayer, I was walking the plank to jump into hell itself. Out of the depths of hell, out of the depths of Sheol, I cried to you, he says later. So he sinks into the the deep sea. And he's going down and he's going down and he's going down. And his lungs begin to scream for air and there is no air. And he starts to drown. And what there's no chance on earth he would have experienced this as a positive development in his fate. But a large creature in the dark, in the bottom of the sea, swallows him and partially digests him. That is not a positive development. You're like, awesome, a fish here to save me. None of us would think that. Jonah doesn't even know what he's dealing with or what he's caught up in or what has captured him. And that is the darkness. And that's the silence. And that's the stillness that he will remain a prisoner in for three days and three nights. 
That's life for Jonah at this point. Where does your mind go? What, do you, what would you think about? Do you wonder what's going to happen next? This has been the scariest, most terrifying series of experiences in my life, hands down. God is after me. He is angry. What do you think? What do you do? Do you cry out? Well, there's no one to hear you. Do you stop crying? Do you stop screaming? Is it like a roller coaster as this force bigger than you just carries you places you don't want to go? What's Jonah thinking? We don't know when it happened. But at some point in those three days and three nights, probably towards the end of it, Jonah talks for the first time. And the weird thing is this. It's the first time in this entire account that he talks to God. He's talked a lot about God to the sailors, right? He's told them about the God he serves, but he has not up until this moment. Rock bottom and then some. He has not yet talked to God. Until now. He opens his mouth and he says this. And I want to, I want to read it to you again with the stage set. I called out to the Lord. Out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol of hell, I cried. And you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. And it was your waves and your billows that passed over me. And then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters had closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I was at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land. Bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up from the pit. O oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered Yahweh. And my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I'll pay. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Jonah had finally seen his God as he was. There's this line in the book of Job. It's the last couple of chapters of Job, this escapade of Job's suffering. And what is God doing in the midst of this? Where is he? What is he up to? And Job says in chapter 42, verse 5, he says something along the lines of my eye, my ears have heard of you. I have heard about this God, but now my eyes have seen you. I have experienced you and I, I, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Job had heard about his God. Job knew his God, but now Job hadn't met his God. 
We've talked many weeks in the past. Jonah knew about his God. He probably knew his God, but now Jonah has met his God. Grace finally has Jonah where it wants him, painted into a corner where there is no escape. What do you do when you're in the stomach of a fish? That's a pretty claustrophobic set of living conditions. Where do you go? What do you do? There is no escape. You're stuck. And Grace had Jonah right where Grace wanted Jonah, which is stuck, which is incapable of any more running. Because wasn't it running that got Jonah into every problem he was in? Isn't it running that gets you into every problem you're in? Turning our backs on God and running. And so Grace paints Jonah into a corner where there's nowhere left to run. He must finally deal with the God he has tried to erase out of his life. And grace gives Jonah one more gift in a very, very, very long line of gifts grace had already given Jonah. The gift of true repentance. He could have repented. We talked about it last week. He could have repented a ton of other times on his way down to when he heard the voice of God. He could have been honest. I, that scares me. I don't know what to do. Help me, Lord. I need time to process this. He could have done it on the way down to Joppa. He could have done it during the storm. He could have done it. When the storm got worse, he could have done it with some of the water. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't. He was bitter. He was angry. He was scared. He was hard-hearted. Grace had put sailors in his face saying, cry out to your God. It's like if you're running from God and you're in a really bad place and there are friends, roommates around you intervening. Say, uncle, cry out to God. Repent. How many times has grace chased Jonah? And Jonah responds with running a little bit more. But grace chases a little further. All the way into the fish. And it gives him one more gift in a long, long, long line of gifts. True repentance. What does repentance do to a person? What does repentance do to a runner who knows about God, who might even know God, but hasn't really met him. What does repentance do to you? What is its effect or consequence inside of you? Listen, as we talk about this, a few things repentance does. The first is it repersonalizes your past. True repentance turns the lights on to your past and your present. You've been in the dark You've been disoriented. You don't know what's going on. We're prone to interpret mercy storms or difficulties in very different ways. But the grace of repentance turns the lights back on and it repersonalizes what has been a very depersonalized, vacant world. A very empty world. And all of a sudden you start seeing God's hand over stuff you never in your wildest dreams expected you would have seen his hand. Jonah says in the passage, your waves, your billows rolled over me, your winds blew me, you hurled me into the sea. He's not just talking about a bad night or a bad storm or bad circumstances or karma or the week from hell. His world is beginning to get repersonalized. God is reentering the picture 
Your hand, Lord, was in the midst of this. God's hand is the last thing Jonah ever would have expected to see in his circumstances, right? When we are on the run from God, remember chapter one, way back a month, more than a month ago. What was Jonah fleeing from? You remember the presence of the Lord. It says it three times, the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. Nearness to God is what he was fleeing. That's what he was uh, running from. The last person he ever expected to be where he was is this Lord, this God. It's the last person. He had, he had looked all around him and seen nothing. When we run from God, you're in your own little world, right? We have left him, whatever the pattern is, whatever the habitual series of things we give ourselves to, whatever stubbornness has met the call of God in your life and a refusal to yield editing rights or a refusal to trust his heart, his goodness, his grace. And we, that, that instinct to run comes on. At that point, the one person you don't expect to see on your run is God himself. And Jonah looks back with new eyes and a repentant heart. And he sees God everywhere in the waves, in the wind, in the sailors, in all of it. It's like David in Psalm 32. We, we referenced this a couple of weeks ago, but in Psalm 32, David had already run from God. He'd been running for months. He had looked at Bathsheba on the rooftop and he'd already thought, no, I got a great plan. It's going to be amazing. I, I'm not going to love Bathsheba. I'm not going to love her husband, Uriah. I'm going to love me. I'm going to steal sex from her. I'm going to steal her husband's life. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get what I want right now. Stay away. Tune this voice out so I can tune this voice up. And he's on the run. And he sleeps with Bathsheba. And he keeps sleeping with Bathsheba. And he gets her husband killed to get him out of the picture. And months and months and months and months go by with a man of God living a double life. Don't you know he still said all the right stuff? Don't you know you would still get lunch or coffee with him because he was so insightful and he really helped you work through your problems? Of course that was going on. And his heart was marble. He was hard-hearted. The last person he expected to see in those months of living a double life was his God. And listen to how he responds. He he, his past is getting repersonalized in retrospect when, when God gives him this gift of repentance and, and David finally responds to it. Listen to what happens. He says in, verse, uh, chapter, in, in Psalm 32, My guilt felt like it was breaking my bones. I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand was pressing on me. Do you ever just feel guilty? Do you ever feel that conscience just twisting in knots. Is that an impersonal to you at the moment? Or is it personal? Is it a father who loves you twisting your conscience in a knot? To bring you home. And to get your attention. Is guilt impersonal to you? Have you psychologized guilt and it's a self-esteem problem? Or it's having trouble moving on? Have you psychologized your shame? Or is it personal? Do you see a person behind it? Do you see the person behind it? Do you see a pursuit of you behind those things? David does when he responds to this gift, this grace of repentance. Jonah does when he responds to this grace and this gift of repentance. 
They didn't see it in the moment because what sin does is it depersonalizes the world. And it edits out. It's like when you can select one color of the color palette to edit out of a picture. It edits out God and anything that has to do with him. And repentance brings that back into the picture. I heard a story uh, one time about two. This is uh, from a family member of mine involved in a church. And she said in the space of one month, two very instrumental men in her church were caught in affairs. One cheated on his wife with a prostitute. One with another woman in the church. Both were caught within weeks of each other. One man, when he was confronted by the elders of the church, was weeping. And his, she said, I, I'll never forget the sentence. He said, I am so thankful God caught me. And the other man is, was, probably still is, blaming his wife for not meeting his needs enough. Which was repentant? Which saw the hand of his father in the darkest, ugliest, worst hour of his life? Pursuing him in that moment. Chasing him. Even in that. This stuff is real. And it matters and it makes a difference. One man was able to see God in that dark hour. One was still blinded because sin blinds us to this. The other thing that the gift and the grace of repentance does is it reminds us who we're dealing with in God. It's interesting. If some of this stuff in Jonah's prayer sounds familiar, it should. Because Jonah is, it's a mishmash of Psalms. Psalm 42, he quotes. Psalm 8, he quotes. Out of the pit, you rescued me. You lifted me up. I was in the the depths of Sheol. And you saved me out of that. He's quoting Psalms and you know that the, that these verses had to have been in his mind growing up as a little kid. He probably memorized it in Sunday school or his mom or his dad taught it to him. And he knew all this stuff. He went to these community groups and he had all this knowledge in his head. But what did that knowledge do for him a few days prior? Jonah, son of Amittai, rise up and go to the Ninevites. It did nothing And look at how those these dusty verses thrown away or put up on a bookshelf and forgotten have resurrected. And they're personal again. And they're describing his experience and describing what God is doing in this moment to him. These lifeless verses have come back to life. He says in verse seven, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. One of the first marks of repentance is your memory comes back too. it's not just that your sight comes back and you can see your past accurately and you can see your present accurately, but your memory comes back too. all those dusty things in your mind. People have told you over the years, you've learned over the years, you've read over the years. You used to believe take on a new life. And God begins to work resurrection in your death by resurrecting his word, which had lied dormant. For so long, he activates it in a sense. And we begin to remember what he's like. We begin to remember what he's like and who it is we're dealing with. David Pallison, a guy I quote a lot, says, when you actually remember God, you don't sin. The only way we ever sin is by suppressing God, forgetting him and tuning out his voice, switching channels, listening to other voices. But when you actually remember, you actually change. In fact, remembering is the first change. That repentance works. Remembering is the first change that repentance works. Remembering what? Remembering what? Just remembering generic things about God? 
I think it's remembering this. This is Martin Luther, one of the reformers, changed history for the whole world forever. He says this, this is what you begin to remember. This is the memory repentance gives back to you. God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick. He doesn't give sight to anyone but the blind and life to no one but the dead. He doesn't give saintliness to anybody but sinners. Wisdom he doesn't give to anyone but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. That's the gospel. That's what repentance opens your eyes and and softens your memory to begin to see again. Your heart softens. Remember last week we said repentance is not a judo trick to get God to do something he doesn't want to do for you. Repentance is a response to something he's already done for you. It's a reaction to mercy that's in the past tense and in the present tense. And we see in this example of how remembering who he is, he's a savior of sinners. He's a chaser of runners. He's a physician of the sick, a justifier of the unjust. Your heart begins to soften. And you know how we say sometimes the gospel is there's a perfect compatibility of who Jesus is and who you're not? Oh, you start having a smile on your face for the first time. You're willing to turn around and face this God. He's not my judge if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, (laughs) cry out for mercy and say, I need to be in Jesus. To face this God, not as a judge, but as a father, as a pursuer. The first work of repentance is you remember who's chasing you and what he's like. He is not after me to kill me as Jonah was convinced on the ship, but he's after me to pursue me that mercy might try. One of the side effects of this remembering is we begin to talk to God about our sin, about our running, about our life, instead of thinking about God. Do you know the difference? I know the difference. Gosh, this is convicting. I'm going to say us. I'm going to take a gamble that you're like me. We 90% of the time, think about God and our circumstances. And maybe 10%, maybe that's really generous, maybe 1%, we talk to God about what's going on, right? You have the thought, oh, I shouldn't have thought that. I should not have looked at that. I need to repent in a few days. I need to ask God to forgive me tomorrow, whatever, like when when I mean it. That is thinking about what's going on in your life and thinking about God. That is not talking to him. You know what it's like with your roommate. There's a huge difference in thinking about you and your roommate and the situation you're in as opposed to talking to your roommate about the situation you're in, right? Giant difference. One is anti-relational. One is avoidance. One is hard-hearted and is not interested in reconciliation. One is going to the person and saying, hey, we've, we've got to work this out. How do, we, how do we get past this? How do we work this out? Forgive me or... We need to talk so I can get to a place of forgiving you. Very different thinking about God in your circumstances and talking to him. Repentance opens up the airwaves again. And the monologue that we're caught in becomes a dialogue. What would it look like for you to start talking to God about the lusts you face every day? Or the shame or the failure from yesterday? Are you talking to him about it? Or are you just think churning on it? You, yourself, and I and the situation that happened. Is it a monologue? One of the things Jonah says later on is, is those who pursue vain idols forsake steadfast love. When you stay in your head, when you think that in analyzing and evaluating and introspecting 
has some redemptive output. It doesn't. He says it's vain. It forsakes steadfast love. You don't have a Messiah inside of you. You can't search yourself long enough to find gospel. We look outside of ourselves to Jesus, who is the good news. Has the monologue of your running and your repenting turned into a dialogue yet? Did you know that if it hasn't, you can do that tonight? You can start talking to God and not thinking about him and what you need to do in the future. But you can do that today. The gift of repentance redirects us. We talked last week about repentance is not about distance. It's not about I'm over here and I've got to get over there, but I, there's no way I can make a jump that big. It's, it's about direction. Where am I facing? If you want to go to New York, are you driving towards New York? Or are you driving towards Miami? It's a big, decisive variable. Well, here, the gift of repentance redirects us. And here's how, in this sense. From being obsessed and fixated on circumstantial problems to being obsessed and fixated on God himself. There's a shift that happens here. Jonah starts out in his prayer talking about how he sees his biggest crisis, his biggest danger, as I've been cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Very descriptive language. Seaweed was wrapping around my face. I was down. I mean, it's the bulk of the prayer. I was down to the roots of the mountains. I was in the depths. I was in Sheol. He's very descriptive about his circumstances, but he begins to shift out of that. His biggest problem is not his circumstance. His biggest crisis is not the chaos that's happening around him. His biggest problem, he begins to realize soon after that, is that he, has, he feels he has been driven out of the sight of God. Verse 4. Then I said, I have been driven away from your sight. And that becomes what bothers Jonah the most. More than the sinking. More than the being within an inch of his life. More than the hopelessness. Is I can't see God. Have you ever missed God? Those of you who know him, have you ever missed his presence? Because you're not enjoying it right now for whatever, whatever reason, either, either he's disciplining you and growing you and he's withdrawn a little bit of a sense of his presence or something's going on and you know what's going on. Your heart is hard. You're not repenting. Do you miss him? You miss people you love when you've not enjoyed their presence in a while. Have you ever missed God and his presence? Jonah begins to miss God's presence. David does too. Let's go back to David, Psalm 51. There's a building climax. David is shifting from circumstantial problems to his biggest problem being, I need nearness to, the, to, my, to my God. He starts out, Psalm 51, verse 9. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a right spirit. The crescendo right before he shifts into something else. Cast me not away from your presence. Cast me not away from your presence, O God, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That's the climax of David's pleading with God. Yes, cover over my sins, blot out my iniquities, but do not cast me from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. The suffering or the storms that you're experiencing in dating, are you still praying just for clarity? Or are you praying that you might know Christ through whatever suffering or trials or confusion he's taking you through right now? And you're not knowing what to do in your future. Are you still just praying for clarity there? Circumstantial problems, but you care very little for the presence of God. 
Or have you begun to obsess and fixate that, Lord, if you are obscuring the future for me right now, then let me know you all the more. Let me trust you. Let me know how strong you are and how on the ball you are with the details of my life. Or is it just about the internship? Is it just about clarity for your vocation? In your struggle with, with lust, with temptation, is it, is, are the prayers just about the circumstantial? Help me to beat this pattern. Or is it about Jesus? Is it a prayer that if I must become more and more acquainted with how weak I am and how corrupt my heart is, then let me know your grace all the more. If I've got to walk through a little bit more of this in my weakness and continuing to fail, give me you. It's like Jacob wrestling with the angel. I'm not letting go until I get you. Until you bless me. Friends, what's the deal? Has repentance, has true repentance begun to redirect you away from simply your life revolving around tiny circumstantial details? Do you want God? Or do you want a God with a little g? To give you whatever you want. That's what true repentance is working in us. That is what God is doing in us. And then the last thing is true repentance requires you. The gift of repentance, the grace of repentance requires you. It invites you. It invites your action. It invites your response. There's a sense in which you might hear me say the gift of repentance, the grace of repentance... Jonah says in this passage, the crescendo of his whole prayer, salvation belongs to the Lord. And you might say, well, awesome. God is sovereign and he is. Grace is sovereign and it is. Repentance is a gift and it is. Then I guess I just sit here and I coast until God decides to do something about my condition. As someone who has thought that, do you hear the wickedness in that? That is satanic. Do you see that? It is outrageous. That we suspect him of evil. And so we run refusing to yield ourselves to our creator, to our father, to our redeemer. And as we run, we use his sovereignty as weaponized ammunition against him to continue avoiding him. Perhaps you've become enough acquainted with the Bible. Ephesians 1, John 3, John 10, John 6, Romans 9, the whole Old Testament where it speaks clearly of God's sovereignty and salvation. It is a result of his movement towards you, not your movement towards him. Maybe you've become just acquainted with, the, uh, with that enough to say, well, if God wants to save me, he better do it because my heart's still not changing. And he's not doing a good job of persuading me. So I'm just going to sit here and see what he wants to do. That is not what he calls from you. He calls you to listen because he says, I'm talking to you now. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And it produces in you faith. You begin to see him differently. Think of him differently. You begin to change. You want him. You see the vanity of idolatry. And you begin to face him. And you say, how can we ever be put on good terms again? That's what he calls us to. Not to sit in your chair and wonder if he's moving towards you or not. Or if he's giving you repentance or not. He says, repent. Come home with me. Not sit there and wonder, is he coming for me? Repent, turn, change, get help. Repentance requires us. So what begins to move your feet back towards him? Do you know that God desires your repentance? He says it, Second Peter. I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I desire that all should repent. Did you know that God desires your repentance? Do you know he celebrates your repentance? 
Jesus says, when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. Did you know that? God desires your turning. He celebrates your turning. Did you know he surrounded you by mercies already, present tense, pursuing your turning, enabling your turning? Does that not warm your heart and make you want to turn back to him in little ways or big ways that we've run from him? Russ Whitfield, a RUF guy up in Maryland, um, he'll be doing summer conference one of the weeks this year, says, God is wearied by our rebellion, but never by our return. Does that reality get your feet moving back towards him? Yes, I've wearied him by my running, by my hard heart, by my stubbornness, by my insistence on me, me being me. But he is never wearied by my return. It's the prodigal son. There's a smile on his face and he's running down the road to embrace me. The last thing that we end with tonight is this. I said it's the crescendo of the whole passage. It's Jonah's thesis statement. I don't know what tone of voice he had or inflection, but you got to imagine this is a guy three days and three nights in the belly of a fish face to face with both the anger and the mercy of God. It is not a hallmark card. It is not a cross stitch on the wall. When he says salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you believe salvation belongs to God? Or have you grown up believing that salvation belongs to you? And it's a task for you to accomplish. Or do you believe that salvation is shared between God and man? Or that God made salvation possible, but now you need to do this, the, the other part, you need to receive it. Jonah says salvation belongs to God. It is his domain. It is his business. It is his prerogative, his initiative, his property. Does he hoard it? No. You've never read a page of the Bible if you think he hoards it. He has cast it out to the ends of the earth. And he has rippled it up to your shore tonight through this. Christian or not, this softens our hearts. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to us. And what will soften your heart and begin to work repentance in you and bring you back to him is when you ask yourself, what does he do with his property? If it's his, am I screwed? Of course he won't let me in. Of course he won't reconcile to me because I am the way I am. Did you hear what Martin Luther said? Did you hear what Russ Whitfield said? Did you hear what Jonah said? He desires your repentance. He has moved heaven and earth to pursue your repentance. What is the salvation, he says, that belongs to him? It's this counterintuitive, ironic, paradoxical, never in a bazillion years would have guessed it, rescue. You know what's intuitive? You know what your conscience will tell you? You know what you can, you know what every other religion in the world, every spiritual uh, program or every myth of modern man and our progress and technology. You know, what they, you know what they all have in common? Salvation belongs to mankind. That's the myth of human progress. Just give us a few more years. We'll invent enough stuff where we won't need God anymore. It's the myth of secularism. It's the myth of every other religion. Salvation belongs to you. What are you going to do with it? You better make it count. You better do your part. Christianity alone says salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's shown in these three letters. Yet. That's the gospel in this passage. 
Jonah's sin had cast him down to the roots of the mountains, yet God brought him up. Jonah's sin had cast him out. I'm driven away from your presence, yet God brought him in. Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, yet God chased Jonah all the way to where he found him. Inside in our intuition, our expectations, we expect that God's going to do what we thought he would have done to Jonah. Cut him off, be done with him, wash your hands of him, cut him loose. That's intuitive. You have to be told the gospel. You cannot connect the dots in your head. God must speak it to you. He must declare it as true. You could give humanity a billion years. We would never come up that this is how he makes us right with him. That Jesus steps in and takes his wrath and his anger and bears the brunt of his justice. That you might bear the brunt of his love and his mercy and his acceptance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you... We're not in the belly of fish for three days and three nights. What Jonah experienced was a children's game compared to what you experienced on our behalf to earn and to win our repentance and our faith and our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord because our repentance doesn't make it come true. But what you did on the cross on the hill, giving yourself for our sins, made it come true. Salvation was yours and what you did with it was share it with us freely. So I pray that even tonight you would do that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.